Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Oh, so this is another one of our geek out episodes where we get to talk about the depth psychology stuff that we love so much. Yeah, I think what I have come away from this conversation with, and I think you guys will too going into it, is um, as somebody who I consider myself somebody who likes to play in the sandbox. Like I have a lot of tools from a lot of different backgrounds, right? I mean, even the fact that I was like in marketing for 10 years and my advertising background, I consider that one of my tools in my toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. Like I use it every day and I use it in the work with clients and it doesn't go away. And I think that what this guest, Janelle, really spoke to so beautifully is how so many things that we might think are almost um, not connected Mm -hmm. overlap so beautifully to help form a really transformative experience. Um, And so I think she's done an amazing job of that, right? Of taking all these different components and putting them into something that work together yeah, people really heal and transform. I love that. I love that none of it is ever wasted. I, you know, I think both of us sort of have this background of having a little bit of like wanderlust in the career path. Like I, I think I wanted to be a little bit of everything for a while, but you're right. None I of it is still do. <laughs> yeah. And none of it's wasted. I feel like yeah. you end up using all of the tools that you've gathered around the path or along the path. I remember Steve Jobs talking about how he took a calligraphy course in college that if he hadn't taken Apple computers would not have had all of the fonts and all of the, the things they had that made them Apple. You know, I think mm-hmm. all of it is, is the information we're gathering to become who we are becoming and it's all perfect, you know? Yeah. And she just so beautifully articulates the importance of allowing yourself to be in the stage of information gathering Mm. and not like rushing out of it and like accepting that it can be hard, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not good or right or helpful. It just means that it's hard. Right. Um, And there's so much important work and stuff that can come from it. If we let ourselves be in that place. Yeah. This guest was great. I'm excited to share. Yeah, she was great. And I'm excited to bring what her work is to you all because I nerded out. And at the end of today and I talking to her, I actually said to her, I would look into taking this course because it, mm-hmm. I don't know, it sparked something in me. I'm a writer too. So it just, um, it sparked like, Ooh, I want to get in there and get my hands dirty. So I hope you guys yeah. find her as interesting as we did. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Vanessa and I are so excited for today's guest. We have Janelle Hardy with us. Janelle is a writer and artist, host of the Personal Mythmaking Podcast, and the creator and teacher of an online transformational memoir writing course called The Art of Personal Mythmaking. Um, Janelle has been working as a trauma-informed body worker in the hands-on healing arts field for over 13 years, and she's also 
um, been an artist for over two decades and teaching adults out of our living room, art centers, universities, and community colleges. All the and places. <laughs> I mean, this, this woman gets around. I love it. Um, and then for the past five years, Janelle has been integrating her expertise into supporting people in their creative healing work via the alchemy of transformational memoir writing. We are so excited to talk about this, Janelle. Thank you so yeah. much for being here. Thanks for having me. All the depth, all the depth. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Two depth psychologists like, yes. I can't wait to get in it. Um, well, why don't you start by kind of telling us like, how did you come to be doing what you're doing, right? Like what was a little bit of your origin story that got you to this amazing place that you're at right now? Uh, a lot of confusion and a lot of mm. big interests. <laughs> yep, yep, sounds about right. <laughs> I have no, I mean, I couldn't have dreamed up what I'm doing right now. That's the wild thing. <laughs> so, so I am from the far northwest of Canada, the Yukon uh, Territory. I can always hear it a little bit. Northern Canadians. Well, I was married to a Canadian for a long time, so I feel like I can always hear a little. I was like, I wonder if she's Canadian. Ah. I am basically Canadian because I'm like up, up, upstate New York. So we okay. like ear for it. <laughs> Interesting. And then within Canada, sometimes to Southern Canadians, I I sound a little bit different. So I think there's a bit of a, a Northern lilt and a sure. slowness mm. to the talking. <laughs> At least that's my theory. Um, so, so I grew up in the capital city, Whitehorse, in the Yukon, which is Tang Kwachan and Kwamindan people's land. And it's a really unique um, area. It's very isolated. It's really North um, for context above British Columbia and beside Alaska. Okay. And so there's this really fascinating mix of different kinds of cultures and communities that are, are all exceptionally vibrant and self-sustaining. I, I was gonna say, even though the population is so small, but I think because the population is so small mm -hmm. and um, even now with internet and flights, it's still a bit, to reach out there right. and so a lot a lot of DIY arts and culture and recreation culture making happens in the north which is so fabulous so I so I kind of grew out of that ethos and I also um, was formed by uh, being part of a family that has um, a lot of multi-generational trauma. Of course, I didn't know those words for it at that point, but I understood that um, all was not well. My parents worked really hard. They were young. My mom was a teen mom. My dad was just 21 when he had me and they had three more kids quickly. Um, we were poor, but I didn't know that because our life was vibrant uh, outside of the money realm. Mm -hmm. um, but there's always this kind of thing humming away in the background, like, why, what's not, what's not, why is there so much disconnection? Why is there, um, why are some family members dangerous to be around mm. or in very contained um, situations? Why are we so far away from so many family members? Mm. All these questions started percolating um, as a child. <clears throat> and, and then being from, such a remote area being a young person of course I wanted to get out of there as fast as possible <laughs> so I found a way by being an exchange student first for a year in Japan I lived in three different Japanese um, host families went to Japanese high school later I returned um, went to 
college for a bit, then did another exchange program through the Canadian government, where I spent um, half my time in Russia, living with a Russian family, with work placements, with peers. This was a group exchange. And then the other half of the time in a small town in southern Canada, where my host family was a, a wonderful Jamaican-Canadian family. The mm. parents had immigrated to this small town, and they were raising their kids there, and, and they loved hosting exchange students. Um, so that sparked me to study anthropology, just like culture is so fascinating. Um, I actually got to take a psychology and anthropology course, which was wild, right? Because how we conceive of ourselves depends on the culture that we're in as well. Um, and during that time of going to university, I became a single mother, not by choice, <laughs> but by circumstance. Mm -hmm. uh, graduated from my bachelor's degree, moved home to my parents, um, had my daughter live there for a year. Anyways, this could become a very long story, but there's so many factors that have shaped me. Um, mm. I, I also loved dance. I ended up doing my master's degree in dance a year after I had my daughter. Um, came home, I was trying to find work. It was so difficult to find work. Um, so I started accidentally doing entrepreneurial things like I love you said accidentally. <laughs> it doesn't suit my personality really and truly. Mm. I, I really thought for sure I'd get a great government job, especially with two degrees, be able to raise my daughter in stability around family in my hometown, which I love so much. I applied for over 80 jobs in two years and I got maybe three interviews. Um, so what I started learning how to do was cobble together a lot of part-time short-term contracts, mostly in the arts and culture sector. And at the same time, I received my first transformative experience of bodywork, the, the Rolfing series. And I decided I wanted to do that. If I couldn't get hired, I could really see my personality being suited to one-on-one -on -one work. The irony is I was also still extremely shy, so I couldn't quite navigate how I would be able to ask such personal questions and work on people in their underwear. And <laughs> but you know, sometimes there's a there's a thing inside of us pushing us towards the thing that mm. I also wanted to be a journalist. But I again, my shyness stopped me from pursuing that because I I didn't know how to navigate as being in my mind intrusive by asking questions confronting yes. right i'm not shy anymore but that was actually a, a a big healing journey to move through that anyways i decided i wanted to be be a body worker because of receiving a lot of um, experiences of freedom by having a physical release that opened up space mm -hmm. for emotions to start moving through me um, mm -hmm. in ways that i was so shut down, I didn't know it was possible. It was what was your, I guess, how did you stumble into that? Like who brought that to you? Or did you find <laughs> yeah. it on your own, right? Because I'm always curious about that. Like in what way did the universe kind of bring you? And that yeah, so I was my, when I was 23, I was pregnant most of my 23rd year and I was in, just wildly stressed. Mm. And someone pointed out that I seemed stressed and I should get a massage. Mm. And I was like, I can't afford that. Yeah. <laughs> But then I saw an ad in the paper for half price massages from someone who was doing their training. So it was, it was a combination of just uh, a well-placed observation and suggestion 
Mm. So then I just started paying attention and the opportunity, the affordable opportunity showed up. And then it turned out she was doing the Rolfing structural integration training. So she said, by the way, this is what I'm doing. Do you want to be my practice client? Um, so I started going through the series just because I liked her, not because I had sought it out, but it was that um, container of a process that was actually more transformative than if I just kept getting regular massages. Will you tell our listeners what the Rolfing process is for yeah, those who yeah. have no idea what that means? Yeah. So structural integration has different forms. The form I do is called Hellerwork structural integration, but the root of it is Rolfing, which is named after Ida Rolf, um, who kind of synthesized and created this system of body work, which incorporates deep tissue massage uh, that is very specifically oriented around working with your fascia, mm -hmm. which is the connective tissue that wraps around um, individual muscle, muscle fibers, wraps around muscle, turns into tendon, wraps around bone. You can think of it like all the elastic bands that hold you in place mm -hmm. within the field of gravity. And when we get injured, when we learn bad posture and practice bad posture, which we all do, we start to get out of alignment and the fascia holds us there. And fascia really responds well to slow, deep pressure. Mm -hmm. And the intention of the structural integration, the Rolfing work is to bring you back into alignment so that your physical body is in more flow. And then the Heller work approach just adds in uh, movement lessons, because how we sit, stand and walk uh, can help us stay in alignment or it can bring us out of alignment. So being able to do that on our own without needing a practitioner is really supportive in keeping the changes lasting. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's deep, intense work. Um, sometimes people describe it as painful. I prefer the word intense. I was going to say, um, I've had a lot of fascial work before and it, it, yeah. it can be... <laughs> You're never supposed to go over the edge of what someone can handle where they start bracing, right? And that's why if we're staying on the side of intense, it's good. If it's pain, unmanageably painful, it's too much pressure. Mm -hmm. But bringing, um, tending to our fascia, bringing our whole physical body into alignment opens up space for the emotional body, for the energetic bodies, it make, for spiritual it makes room for everything else to come into alignment as well. Mm -hmm. So, so that's what yeah. sparked uh, an inner transformation for myself, made me want to offer that kind of work. Um, so I signed up for uh, training and I had to wait till they had enough students enrolled, which was a couple more years of um, juggling all sorts of jobs. So then I became a body worker, but I wasn't skilled in business or entrepreneurship or marketing or networking or promoting myself. So that was another, um, really for me, it was a really difficult journey because I was still very shy, yeah. uh, very challenging, um, trying to figure a lot of it out on my own. Um, and so alongside that, I was always making art, um, because creativity really keeps me steady. Um, doing the body work, usually juggling a couple other little jobs just for a little more stability. Because mm -hmm. um, sometimes I'd be busy with the body work, sometimes I wouldn't. And that's you know really hard to rely on when you're raising a kid on your own. Of course. And so 
I made a couple moves when my daughter was nine and then mm. uh, 14. And that was tough, but we moved away from my hometown and my family. My father had bit, had cancer for four years and then died. And um, so I, I got all these initiations into grieving, into um, needing to individuate. I didn't understand when I moved away from the Yukon after my dad died because I really love my hometown, but I just felt this very powerful push that I kept resisting till I couldn't to leave. Mm -hmm. And that actually gave me the space and distance to start to do um, really healing, painful and healing work with my mom to, um, which again has to do with these intergenerational systems and patterns. Um, I was able to kind of turn and ask her to work with me, which of course she was really willing to do. My mom is a counselor and an art therapist. And, you know, not so, all of us have that. So that's amazing. No, I know. I'm, I feel so fortunate that although it was tough and painful, it, it was also so worthwhile, but it needs to start with a willingness. And my mom was willing. Mm. Um, and so through all of that, I, uh, I wasn't really into websites or online stuff, but I knew the town I was in it was not a town I wanted to stay in long-term and building up a bodywork practice in person is hard work and you lose, you lose all of that when you leave. And I started discovering online courses and um, groups. Yeah. And I was really blown away, especially myself. A lot of people in the somatic body oriented worlds are really resistant to online. I know that's changed since the pandemic hit, mm -hmm. but no, we couldn't. It, it's still not, hard. I mean, I will say same. it has it? changed, but it, it, it's still, it's not, it isn't exa exactly the same. I mean, it's not exact programming that I've done too. Like I find it to be difficult to bring 100% of that into my work with my clients. I might be able to bring 80% of it into my work yeah. online with clients, right? But it is a little harder to get to that 100, I find. I've got a butt though, because okay, good, my, I'm glad <laughs> my discovery butt. was, uh, yes, 80% of the hundred you can bring compared to being completely in person, but wow, the, the, the ability to create a depth of connection, to mm. track people physically, to take the time to, um, set the frame up with the, the video, the distance between each other, um, and different kinds of deep connection that can happen uh, through the screen that actually can't, especially in groups that can't happen in person. Mm -hmm. What I found, have found, which is so beautiful and exciting for me is um, I get a much wider range of people with different life experiences in my online groups compared oh, yeah. to my in-person groups, which makes it so much better. It's more accessible because you don't have to travel, um, arrange for childcare if you have children. Yes. And um, I, I build certain things in to ensure that the, the missing pieces actually happen in the Zoom room. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that we miss um, in a group is if we're in person, we have this informal time after uh, the group has finished where everyone's bumping into each other in the hallway, putting their boots on. There's this mm -hmm. like organic chatter and laughter. Mm -hmm. So I devote the last 15 minutes to muting myself and 
Nice. Inviting conversation to expand stuff like that can yeah, actually that. fill in a lot of the gaps. Um, anyways, I'm very glad I figured that out before the pandemic hit. <laughs> so it was, can you, you know, Janelle, can you, um, I just want to, I want to actually, I love this because really what you're speaking to is this ability, or I guess like a lifelong learning of, um, learning and pivoting and learning and pivoting, mm -hmm. right? And integrating and learning and integrate. And, and the reason why I wanna just kind of name that is because I've worked with so many people over the years, right? Who just think they need to know and just think they need to have it figured out and they need to oh, be able yeah. to do it all at one time. And I think really what you're putting words to so beautifully through your story is that that's not how it works for almost any of us, right? Yeah, and I believe that too. I spent a lot of time stuck in creative block and, and stuck in general because I thought I, ne I needed to have it figured out and have it perfect before I started. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say the necessity of uh, like really being a single mother, a solo parent and needing money. The fire mm -hmm. under your ass with that pushed me, mm -hmm. pushed me into more discomfort than I would have been willing. You know, like you just mm -hmm. have to, you just have to keep going and figure things out when they don't work and so stressful yes but also um, very helpful for me mm. in shifting out of that kind of belief system and into the reiterative try and try again and mm -hmm. and also pay attention and notice what's working and what isn't and be willing to change but but I have been a very rigid person so you know anyone who's listening like oh, Janelle sounds like she's so flexible. It's been a learning <laughs> yeah. process and, and it is possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so to kind of play on that, the, the real turning point into offering um, or creating transformational memoir writing process was I decided to experiment. I, I love teaching adults. It's, it's just a real pleasure of mine um, and, and supporting an opening into shift. Mm -hmm. Um, so I decided I'm going to just experiment with some classes in my living room. This was about six years ago. So I made a little poster and I had two courses. I had idea. One was intuitive painting. I was sure people would sign up for that. And then just randomly, right when I was making the poster, I was like, oh, personal myth-making. It just landed in my head mm. and I thought that sounds cool no Figure one's going to sign go. up for that <laughs> no one's even everyone's going to sign up for intuitive painting well four people signed up for personal myth making no one signed up for any of the other things I was offering mm. so that then I uh, <laughs> I nod from the universe <laughs> well if I cancel it I lose the money but they just paid me I need the yeah. money I think the idea is cool but I don't know what I'm doing so mm. here we go yeah. It, was, it was wonderful. Um, so I started figuring it out. That was before I really understood online courses were a thing that you could do. But then, then I was thinking, I don't want to stay in this town forever. I really enjoyed teaching this. Mm. Maybe it's possible to do it online. I still didn't know it was a memoir writing course. It was all about transformation, but I was using a lot of writing tools. And um, so again, playing off of like, reiterating and experimenting I, the first time I offered it online only one person signed up which wasn't enough money for me for it to be sustainable and also right. wasn't enough people for it to be a group process right so but again I needed like I needed the money <laughs> 
And so I said to the woman, okay, it's not going to be a group thing. You're the only person in it, but do you want to just experiment? We'll do this one-on-one. So she, you know, she got a great deal for one-on-one (laughs) because you can't price those two things the same. But through, I'm so grateful she said yes, because through doing these calls with little bits of home, creative homework, mostly writing um, over the course of about two or three months, I discovered that she was, she was identifying a narrative arc to her life story, a meaning making story and writing the first draft just through this personal myth making process that kept showing up to me. And then when people would ask me what I was up to, I'd say, oh, I'm, I've got this course, personal myth making, their eyes would light up. So I think that's a good, that's a good title. And then they say, well, what's it about? Uh, Well, you know, transformation, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think you get the first draft of your memoir written. And whenever I would say memoir, people's eyes would light up as well. And so that was my clue. Actually, it's a nice product, a first draft, but, and you know, we, we are in contemporary cultures that like products Mm. (laughs) that's a good way to be of service but also um just people's eyes would start to sparkle so I realized there's this huge hunger to work with life story and write a memoir that I hadn't fully understood until I started talking about it and the talking about it taught me that that's how the course wanted to become. I love what you're talking about in terms of the entrepreneurial process because I think so often people really get to the point of like deciding something's a wash or a failure without sort of taking the steps to say like, yes, I may not make money initially doing whatever this is, Mm -hmm. but you know, information gathering is priceless. And I've certainly Mm -hmm. learned that with things that I've done along the way where it's like, yeah, the first time or two that you do something, it's a little bit like this is workshopping, whatever the thing is, and you probably won't make some money. But if you can just sort of say like, I'm using this to gather information about what works and what doesn't, um, then that is priceless, right? You can't put a price mm-hmm. on that. And I just want to name that yeah. for anyone who's like thinking about going into something. I think that's really valuable information that you're I agree. offering. Yeah, Simon Sinek, actually, I heard him say this once when he was talking about writing in particular. And he was saying that for him, by the time he wrote his first book, which exploded, right? He had been teaching it and speaking it for so long that it essentially wrote itself. Mm, He was like, mm -hmm. I didn't do it the other way around. I didn't write a book about something and then start teaching on that content. I was already so well-versed in it that by the time I was ready, it just, the pen just kind of moved itself. And I found that also a really interesting tidbit, whether you're a writer or not a writer, to just understand that like, sometimes you have to really be living in it and like living in it. I mean, it's everything out of your mouth. It's everything you're breathing. It's everything you're thinking. It's, you know, and then at that point, then the actual, um, whatever the creative output of it is essentially is just like birthed, right. Mm. Um, that sometimes it doesn't work the other way around. And I think you're actually speaking to something similar, which is like, you've got to really get in there and roll around in it sometimes for then like the aha moments to come. Um, sometimes those aha moments don't come first. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You may. Okay. Getting in and rolling around in it made me think of two scenarios. You've got a dog and your dog has just decided to roll in a bunch of shit. And shit. Disgusting. Yep. (laughs) But if you put your, if you, if you just shift that perspective, because it can feel really tough, the rolling around Mm -hmm. in it stage um, with, especially with expectations. But, Mm. but if we shift ourselves to the dog's experience, that's heaven. The dog's rolling around in it because it's, (laughs) 
smells good to the dog, right? <laughs> I love that example, but I use that. <laughs> yeah. Can I be in the process without the expectations? I think that's a really important point that you're making. I think so often we get caught up in what something should look like, the amount of money I should be making to make this worth my time. Whereas if we're just so excited about the process and the expansion and like how I am growing into doing something new. And yes, to your point, that's a little challenging sometimes when I got to get food on the table for my kid. And also, um, I don't know, I think it's still following the breadcrumbs of my bliss, following the breadcrumbs of what aliveness looks like for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us what that looks like. So tell us like after this process of rolling around in the shit and <laughs> <in> proverbial shit. <laughs> Maybe it's as the dog. Hey, I'm just, I'm just using her example. I love it. Um, you know, what did we land on? Because I know that when we were researching you to have you on, I thought, I said today, I just, I love this idea of using memoir writing as mm. a way to transform and as a way to heal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are like narrative therapy and there are different modules within our world that obviously we use, but it didn't sound, it sounds like these, what you do is much more like intense um, and, and specific. And so I want to hear a little mm -hmm. bit more and I'm sure other people want to hear more about like what that looks like. Yeah. So something I noticed working with my bodywork clients one-on-one -on -one was um, the transformational process involves renegotiating our stories about ourselves mm -hmm. through our bodies, through our minds, how the feelings affect our thoughts and our posture. Mm. Um, and all of my work is really body centric. So I really um, prefer to orient from a somatic perspective. And part of it is, is, is kind of just trying to shift us out of this overly intellectual thinking mind floating over a body that just serves us sort of idea that we have yes. um, where we override how our body is actually part of our our body psyche is a term I really like mm. you know um, and so the art of personal myth making is a transformational memoir writing course that uses um, body prompts as an opening into writing so I always start people with a writing prompt that's from the body and the reason is that it just just gives us access to more memory. It gives us access to um, more surprises. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be difficult and sometimes that can be absolutely delightful and surprising. We don't know what's going to come out of a somatic writing prompt, but it's going to be different than if we're just trudging through our brain trying to grab a memory. Well, give us an example of what a somatic writing prompt might be. Uh, I usually keep them small and gentle. Uh, so that they're accessible and so it could be as simple as uh, hold your hands up take a look at them they're usually about two or three minutes long so this is a very abbreviated one let your fingers just wave a little bit and see if you can bring your attention into your hands and into your fingers and let them land right in these big knuckles where your fingers meet your palms and then fold your fingers forward right at that knuckle area. You can take a peek at me if you need a cue. And then open your fingers back up, spread your fingers apart. And your job here is to let your attention land in the sensation and let your, turn your hands the other way, and let your visual attention 
hover and hang out on how your hands look, as well as the sensation of movement, and then blow on your hands and just notice how the air feels. And then I offer guidance on flow writing um, to, to use the experience, the sensory physical experience as an opening into the writing and then to use flow writing, also known as expressive writing, morning pages, um, journaling, um, but very specifically flowing and not letting yourself stop, keeping an eye out for the story because I'm working with story, not just introspection. You know, I, I, I really want the insight and introspective part of the flow writing to only be in service of, of making space for a story or a memory to show up so that can be written mm -hmm. um, because often, especially people that are really big into journaling can get a little stuck in the inner insight seeking introspective part, which is really valuable, but there's something about working with story that is magic and transformative that we just don't honor in these kind of mainstream cultures these days. And so we tend to, um, instead of letting a story exist, we tend to seek to critique and analyze without letting a story land first. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I bring in fairy tale and myth, ancient tales that are cultural heritage artifacts that are much older than us as individual people because they have this powerful medicine when we allow them. <clears throat> and then back to body, most of the um, somatic techniques are nervous system regulating techniques as well. And one of the reasons for that is that most folks are, are a bit dysregulated mm -hmm. because of all sorts of different kinds of trauma, um, big T traumas and little T traumas that we've experienced in a contemporary world that goes too fast for our mammal bodies to adjust is a really quick and easy way of saying yeah. it. Um, and so a lot of people that show up for my work or just have a conversation with me about it confess to having this longing to work with their life stories, to write their memoir for five, 10, 20, even 35 years yeah. mm -hmm. and not doing it because of many different fears. But a big one is having had really difficult experiences in their lives that they're afraid they'll be overwhelmed by if they yes. start to write it and they don't have a support, a guide, tools or resources to be able to navigate that on their that own. Well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's... Um, one very specific purpose for the um, the body orientation that I have and the skills that I acquire through my continuing education. Yeah, I love it, Janelle. <laughs> I want to jump in because I'm so curious from a process perspective. I think so often if I haven't walked through the process of something, I'm very like, yeah, but what does that like, what would that be like tangible? Mm -hmm. So if we like stay with the example you were giving us with our fingers, so how does that sort of evolve into something that is connected to a myth? Like how, how would you continue mm -hmm. the process with a person from that space of working with our hands? I start people working with a fairy tale first. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So do you um, assign it to them or is it about no. them <laughs> that makes the most sense, right? They find right. one that resonates. Yeah, so my foundational um, workshop for the whole course is actually a free on-demand video workshop that people can encounter without signing up for the course. 
and then if pe if people sign up for the course without having taken that workshop, that's where they start. Okay. And it's it's called Outline Your Memoir Using Fairy Tale and Myth as Your Guide. And okay. so what I get uh, what I get people to do, and this takes a little bit of educating because not a, not everyone grows up um, being exposed to story. Mm -hmm. right or right. being a depth psychology person like we are where we like rolled around in that right yeah right <laughs> yeah um or most everyone is exposed to story because we're we we're hungry for story mm -hmm. but it's in the form of movies of um of consumable products where we're not interacting in a community with them mm -hmm. right and so it it takes a little bit of work to start untangling like what's the, you know, all these shows, they're, mm, yeah. they're playing out archetypal stories. A lot of them are the hero's journey, but not all of them. And, and the hero's journey is, uh, uh, I'm going to get too nerdy here, but it's not the only option. Most of them have heard us talk about the hero's journey multiple times too. So they're like nodding their head. I'm yeah, sure. But it, I mean, it's, it's a useful starting point, but it's, it's limited. It's, like, it's kind of like the one the that we all one. know. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, so my, my guidance in this workshop is uh, to actually start thinking about an ancient tale. So I define that, you know, fairy tale and myth are the most obvious ones, but it could be folklore. Um, it could be family lore, this epic mm -hmm. story that just keeps traveling down. It just, just has to be a story that's Love lasted that. more than one generation. Beautiful, right? That gets retold, right? And then I encourage people they, to pick one that resonates doesn't have to make sense. In fact, trying to make sense of it and be brainy and analytical is not helpful in the process. Mm -hmm. To pick the story, to research different versions, because um, we all come from oral history cultures. Widespread literacy is not that old, you know, and so knowledge and story and um, cultural belonging, all of these things have traditionally been passed down through story, music, dance, uh, garments, adornment, mm. and um, but it takes a bit of looking for a lot of us these days to start to reclaim yeah. that. Yeah. But the stories are still there. These stories are so powerful, and mm. I know you know they also carry archetypal figures, right? The the story itself is this um, larger than life energy, and then inside that there's all this these different symbols and archetypal figures. And when someone decides to build a relationship with a story, the story kind of comes a little closer to meet them. And, and we, we tell the story we want to work with it by doing a bit of research about the different versions. Mm -hmm. And then starting, so back to my workshop, I get people to start with the story they choose to learn from it without trying to think about why is Janelle trying to get me? How does this apply to my life? Right. Do a timeline of that, do a timeline of their life. And I have a document that goes over rites of passage, pivotal points inside and outside of our control. Mm. The elements, I mean, elements, every single one of those is a possible story to write. But when we lay it out on a timeline and we go back and forth between the story we choose and our life story, and we take a fo soft focus, um, it's theme and pattern spotting, we start to see the mythic narrative arc, 
that is expressing itself through our experiences that you know we might have an inkling of a couple things and have interpreted it in a destructive way maybe um but when we do this kind of work and we invite an ancient tale into our lives to work with us it's remarkable how that starts to take shape because the other thing with memoir writing is we can't write everything mm -hmm. and it would be boring if we just did a linear start to finish a memoir right. is really about finding uh, a core theme or two that we want to work with to explore part of our life through the form of a story that's why and that's why it lots really great memoirs often um, write more than one memoir because yeah, they can they have, they have different to, themes that all. we experience yeah. so that's a starting point man i'm like i'm so fascinated by this work like this sounds this sounds really amazing yeah and i think this is so much of why we love working with myth i think there is something about myths that just really make us feel like we are less alone in the experience of our humanity i love mm -hmm. that you draw from the experience of our ancestors and it almost feels like reclaiming some of these generational patterns that mm -hmm. we can see have been sort of playing out through our life experience but there's something so empowering about like owning my story and writing it from the context that you're you're speaking to I just I can imagine that's such an empowering experience for the people that you work with I yeah love I that. love I love being able to support and witness mm. that empowerment it's a beautiful blend of the somatic component to to the to the writing and the artistic component and and like I think before I'd spoken to you I would have been like how do those two go together and now I'm like how do they not mm. <laughs> like the way you described it it makes it just is like obvious like it makes so much sense that they would go hand in hand yeah mm -hmm. yeah Absolutely. well janelle we have some questions that we ask all of our guests so we'd love to do a little rapid fire with you if we can mm -hmm. um the first question we ask is who have been your greatest mentors teachers people that have impacted your journey up to this point <sighs> whether you've met them or not yeah <laughs> thinking about this question um well people people and experiences. These are my answers. Uh, mm. I would say my daughter and my mom mm. have been being in relationship with them as mother and as daughter has been a huge teacher for me. And especially having my mom be so willing to do her own healing work and then to do healing work with me mm. as well has been a very uh, amazing thing. And then being a mother is a constant process of love and, and cat catastrophic humbling. <laughs> My daughter's Activation. 19 now. Uh, yeah. that's, a, uh, that's a beautiful way to put it. Catastrophic humbling. Yeah. <laughs> How do you use that too? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I, I love yeah. the, the, the days when I was like an utter goddess. Those younger years are labor intensive, but you, you can do no wrong. <laughs> um, so the, hmm. And I, of course, I've had many other teachers and mentors, but if I think of the two, and my dad's dying, like the most actually. Transformation. Yeah. 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 Those. And then experiences that have taught me have been extreme loneliness, um, mm -hmm. shyness, which goes with loneliness, and uh, being stuck in a state of longing. So ha untangling myself from those has been a huge teacher for me in my life. 
I just really love that you spoke to the experiences that have taught you the most. That just um, really moved me so much. Janelle, you're the first one to do that. And I really, I really love it. And I love the three that you chose because oof, are those powerful teachers. So the second question is around flow. Where do you find yourself? What do you find Mm. yourself doing when you find yourself in a state of flow? Dancing. Mm. Dancing. Dancing. I just feel so right and alive on a hot sweaty happy dance floor it's been in short supply these days yes, <laughs> but I hear you so that is absolute and utter flow and joy for me um and, and rightness in my body and whole self mm. and any creative act uh painting collaging sewing cooking also puts me into flow walking as well mm-hmm. Beautiful. And then what breaks your heart? Mm. Uh, so many things. <laughs> right. Climate change is breaking my heart. Um, and I'm in Vancouver. I just moved to Vancouver, BC in Canada. And uh, as we're talking, it's just a week out from an atmospheric river that came through that catalyzed catastrophic landslides and flooding and bridges being washed out and highways being washed out. And I'm in a pretty normal bubble in Vancouver and I'm completely surrounded by absolute and utter devastation in um, long-term devastation. After a summer of devastating wildfires and heat domes. And so the state of our world is, and how us as humans are so unwilling to look and see and feel it and make changes Mm -hmm. to what's happening in the climate and on earth is really, really heartbreaking. Yes. And then the final one is a heavy one. It is, what is your favorite food? (laughs) Oh, I just love food. (laughs) I I love soups. I and it's, I love eating soup, but I especially love making soup stock, making soup making enough to put some in the freezer so there's always soup and the kind of soup doesn't matter as long as it's delicious mm, I, love it. I love it there's something like very nourishing right <laughs> with like with really delicious sourdough bread and fancy butter somehow I was thinking that reminds me of UV like I was I thinking like soups I don't know why <laughs> I, do love I love a good it. Soup and stew, and I love making them. So I think you're making them. Reminds you of me. I know. I love it. Well, Janelle, I'm so excited that you came on to tell us about this because I feel like there's just something so like. Certainly, I love that you're doing this work in the world, and I think there's just so much power in helping people connect to their story in this way. But also, I really love the way that you spoke to sort of following the breadcrumbs of your aliveness and, you know, the things that are turning you on along your path, the ways that I might be able to make this into something that could maybe be a little lucrative or maybe be something that I could support people through. So I really appreciate you sort of giving us that insight as well. Cause I think that's really, um, adds value as well. Great. So where can people find you if they're, if they're curious about working with you or looking, checking us out right. a little bit deeper, you can find everything I do on my website, which is, um, JanelleHardy.com, J-A-N-E-L-L-E-H-A-R-D-Y.com. I hang out a little bit on Instagram. That's Janelle McKinnon Hardy. Um, and, but it's all findable at my main website. Love it. Yeah. 
Mm. I'm going to be pinging you. I'm, I actually have in my head, I'm thinking about the lab tonight. I'm like, oh, I know cool. this would be such a cool class in the lab. Yeah. yeah. That's oh, such a good idea. happy to teach my workshops as, yeah. like, as hmm. a guest instructor. Check yeah. your email. You might be getting one from me. in touch. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much Amazing. for hosting this really delicious conversation. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast.